Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Patrick Reyes here, and today I'm excited because you'll get to meet my boss, President Stephen Lewis. He is also co-founder of Do Good X, an accelerator designed for underrepresented social entrepreneurs who have limited business development experience and are passionate about developing businesses that do good in the world, and co-author of Another Way, and also, again, a co-author of a great book that's coming out in March, A Way Out of No Way, An Approach to Christian Innovation, which you can pick up now. He co-wrote it with our Senior Director of Communications, co-founder Dugadex, Kimberly Danielle. And beyond all of this, beyond author, beyond president, Stephen Lewis is also just an inspiring, thoughtful, genuine, good human. So welcome, Stephen Lewis. All right, President Stephen Lewis, Hefe of Hefe's here at FTE. I'm so glad you joined us on The Sound of the Genuine good to be with you, Ben. Steven, I know from working with you day to day, not at all your business, but I know a lot of your business, but I'm curious about how you got here. So if you can take us back to who are your people? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, so my people, my mother, she's from a little small town called Center, Alabama. And my father's from Roxbury, Boston. And they met at Johnson C. Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina, historically black college. My dad's people were originally from North Carolina, and they migrated through the Great Migration to New York and Boston. And so I had this kind of best of both worlds. I had this rich melting pot of the inner city and a northeastern city like Boston. And then I had the slow rural farm life from my mother's family. And that made, I think, for an interesting kind of dynamics of just growing up. My brother and I, we tend to be a little bit more laid back. But we really enjoyed going to Boston. My mother worked for the airlines, and so we got to travel a lot. We got to see a lot at a very early age, from different cities, spending time with cousins and having a good time. That's where my roots are from. Those roots, I think, shaped a lot of who I am today and just in terms of my demeanor and the ways in which I pursue life. And what were you dreaming at this stage? What were some of your imaginations about what you want to be when you grew up? And, and who was there to fan those flames? Yeah, I wanted to be an architect, strangely enough, and I had a knack for drawing, took several courses in grade school, took some courses in college. I just enjoyed the dimensions of writing and transposing and the kind of art of creating structure and the ways in which that can hold ideas and people and organizations and communities to do a particular thing in that regard. And so I was more artistically inclined in that sense. As a young boy, I, I had a lot of imagination. Curiosity and imagination were the two things that kind of went hand in hand. But also, I was always asking questions, exploring different things. And that really gave lens to a lot of my kind of artistic sensibilities of drawing what I saw in the world. A lot of it was more, I think, internally versus externally focused. And did you have artists around you that were giving you feedback, that really helping you explore this artistic side of you? My dad was interested in a lot of different things. He enjoyed drawing cartoons and, and that type of thing. So he would be the person that I would say that was probably my my muse or my inspiration of thinking artistically. My mother, she did other types of things. She was very creatively inclined as well. So I enjoy drawing, but I also learned a lot from my mother. My mother wanted to raise us up in such a way so that we could be self-sufficient, that we wouldn't have to depend on or expect 
our partner to do for what we should be able to do for ourselves. I mean, that sounds like you got an incredible support in that house. Like you got mom and dad, artists, cooking, making things. Did all that carry into your subject matter? How did your friends, did you have a little group of artists you roll with? Were you always in the studio? Like, what was it like? No, I was a student athlete. I swam through middle school and did, you know, competitions and swim teams and that type of thing. With junior high, I would play basketball. So none of those things translated in terms of what I was doing in the school setting. In many ways, you know, I was meeting. I was six four, adapted to my context in that regard. So no, those kind of artistic things were things I kind of did outside of school or in my own kind of private time. All was not grand and, and great. My parents divorced at a young age and my mother suffered from depression and other forms of mental health issues and that type of thing. So in terms of our support, we had extended family, but most of them didn't live in Charlotte. My mother and father had a rich, thick HBCU network of friends. These were college friends that stayed intact and that was supportive of our family and created that type of nucleus of support in that regard. That's a strong network and they rolled deep. And those were longstanding friendships that even continue today. And they were a large part of the extended village that raised us as a part of our extended family. It seemed like either every weekend or every holiday was some form of kind of a family reunion, even if they were not your blood relatives. That close-knit family and those friends will always ask you questions. What do you want to do? And what do you want to be? I remember being as young as five, telling my mom, not really knowing what all that meant, but saying, hey, you know, I feel like something about my life is going to be more than just a, a normal, everyday kind of person going about his or her life. That was probably my earliest inkling of maybe there might be something more to my life than just growing up, getting a job, getting married, settle down having kids, growing old, and then transitioning. I feel like my life had like greater significance, I think, as early as five. And so I had a community that was always asking me like what I was going to do. I was a late bloomer. I was still trying to figure it out, not sure what I was going to do. When I got to college, I landed on business. I've always been interested in business because of what it can be in terms of autonomy, economic freedom, but more importantly, the way in which it's a container to organize people and mission and to accomplish things in the world. Because the vast majority of, of the wealth in the world, and I think in the country, are wrapped up in organizations. And if you can help organizations restructure and approach the world with an open hand versus a closed hand, we can make the world a much better place than the one that we've inherited. How did you discern your college choice or the business program choice? Let me tell you, it was so unsophisticated. There were two options that I was kind of thinking about. And for the most part, I wanted to stay close to home to help my mom out with my younger brother. And also she had some health challenges. And so I just felt it would be better for me to stay close to home. And you know, that's what families do. You revise your plans. I went to the local commuter college, UNC Charlotte, which is a mammoth of an entity today. That's really how I made the decision in terms of uh, college. And I knew that I was going to go into business. I just didn't know what aspect of that did that entail. So what did that set you up for? UNC Charlotte, 
You got business, regional, commuter, campus. It really sets up folks to stay in that local spot. Was that your kind of imagination? I'm going to go out and uh, graduate from here, start a business or join a business? I knew that I wanted to go into some form of business. I graduated, went to work for Moody's Investor Service. And that was all about really trying to look at 10Ks and quarterly reports and Reporting, data, inputting, those things used to come on CDs and businesses would use that to make evaluations around businesses in terms of investment and that type of thing. I probably did that for maybe 12 months, but I was also working throughout the entire time in college. So I worked in retail selling lady shoes and going to school full time. And all that really just set me up for thinking about the ways in which business could be a viable path for me in terms of my work. So that set me up for Nations Bank, which is now Bank of America. And I was one of a hundred recruits that came into this kind of 60,000 member organization. And it really was about trying to equip the next generation for executive leadership. It's one of these leadership programs. You do a 18 month stint in different areas of the bank in three rotations, and then you get a permanent placement after that. I started in this niche area within the bank, which is corporate real estate and asset management. Then I went into corporate purchasing. It was there that I learned a lot about business and it opened up my imagination about how, of all the bad things that businesses do in communities, how they can have a positive impact in communities as well. I remember there was a little Episcopal church in downtown where my boss would go and do community service and volunteer there. And so as part of this management recruitment program, they wanted you to be well-rounded. So they want you to have this kind of broad exposure. They also wanted you to be paired with a coach and paired with your peers and learn how to do problem solving. They wanted you to also be a community leader. So they want you to be out in the community. So one of the things I did was shadow my supervisor at the time, who was 36-year-old guy from Tennessee, Charles. And he was a finance guy. He was an accounting guy. And I just shadowed him and saw the ways in which he was involved in the community, but also saw the ways in which the bank was working to do community development and not so much as the gentrified way that we typically see. So that was my kind of start of aha and exposure of the positive effects that businesses could have within communities. And shadowing Charles at that time, it really exposed my awareness about the importance of this is not about being workaholics or working in your job from nine to five, but it is about how you think about the well-roundedness of what it means to be a leader. But in doing so, what I also realized was what I didn't like about business. A large part of that is, I feel like it's like the academy, which is you get a job and then they want you to move here. And you just got to pick up your family, you go somewhere else and you do your time there and you're successful there. And then another opportunity, then they move you here. And I was like, I didn't want to be moving around the country, chasing the dollar or climbing the corporate ladder. Because of my mom's health and well-being, I was really looking for more stability. How do I plant? where I am and actually build from there. Those are some of the kind of inner kind of turmoil that I had about, do I really want to do this? There has to be more to life than climb the corporate ladder. I had to believe that my life has greater significance than chasing the opportunity to be the big person. And now where I was at that bank, I was two levels from the CEO. 
I, I was very fortunate in terms of being able to drive board members back and forth, build relationships, see what happens at the executive level. So the exposure, bar none, was not like any other type of training that I have ever had. In many ways, is what has cut my teeth and has prepared me for the type of professionalism, at least that I tried to uphold and bring even into my work today. You know, in that sense, there's a lot of good that has come as a result of that experience and also realizing that experience is not everything. But that institution did more for my kind of vocational imagination and cultivating the next generation and my own sense of meaning and purpose. If I could just bottle this up and take this to the church. If I can help religious institutions, this should be even more important because they're concerned about God's work and God's leaders and how this work is going to continue on, that I should be able to take this, ball it up, and bring it to religious institutions. And man, let me tell you, I was green as a Granny Smith apple. My experience was met with a lot of raised brows. This dude is talking Martian. He's from a whole different planet. That's not what we do. That's not how we do. I don't think it was a language barrier, but it's imagination gap in terms of imagining who we are and what we can be. As an outsider, insider of church, I can see the possibilities. I can see what religious institutions could be. I can see what the educational formats could be. The bank offered that type of dichotomy for me in thinking about the ways I was in the bank, but I was also being shaped and formed in my religious institutions and vice versa. Being that in-betweener or being that liminal space allowed me to continue to leverage my creative ability to see artistically possibilities and to imagine possibilities that I otherwise may not have been seen if I was just like focused on one thing or the other. You mentioned bringing them into religious institutions and we haven't heard that part of your story. So tell us a little bit about like church, like where is church showing up as you're going through this kind of business, the level of access you have at the national bank level, thinking about investments, asset management, all this stuff that most 20 year olds don't get to even witness, let alone make some decisions on. So where does the church play alongside that narrative? I was always in my home church, Friendship Missionary Baptist Church out of Charlotte, North Carolina. It was a middle-class church. As a young kid in high school, you know, church was not necessarily a bad place. It was a place where I could continue to ask my questions. It was a place that affirmed me in the sense of this church will put my drawings up to be viewed by members. It, it had that type of affirmation in that sense. That was a lot of pressure, but also a great appreciation of how a church was affirming the gifts of someone young before I even could put those two things together. When I was at the bank, I was still attending friendship and I started doing lunchtime Bible studies. I'm not really sure why I did that, except feeling a sense of call. And in large part, of it was because this, this book and this faith is like the center of Black Christians' life. I felt like I needed to understand it more. As I studied more and got involved within my own church, I had this wonderful teacher, the Reverend Dr. Sandra Caldwell. She really opened up my imagination about studying the words beneath the text. That was like giving a kid a chemistry set. So coming back to this lunchtime Bible study, I was doing lunchtime Bible studies, people in the corporate setting who were young professionals who wanted to do this. But what that helped me to do is to get clear about what it was that I believe or what it was that was important to me. Let me say it that way. It's good to have that kind of outsider perspective to help push you 
But all those, I think, Patrick, was the beginnings of a call to ministry. I didn't know all, all that entailed. I didn't even know there was a seminary, let alone, like, I just knew my church for the most part. But then, like, that whole side of me, like, I had not put two and two together. But it was church that really shaped and formed me that way, where the pastor was a teaching pastor and was a deeply spiritual, contemplative type of guy, and yet a very fiery kind of preacher. And so I remember... His son and I discovered commentaries, and we used to go to the Wednesday night Bible study. They're having these conversations going through the text. And so me and his son, we're sitting there, and we raise our hand, and he was like, oh, yes, son, ask your question. He would ask his question, and I would say, y'all going to gang on, be easy on the old man. And, you know, we're sitting in a sanctuary, probably about 50 people, and it got to this point where we're just like, so let me ask you a question. Do you have to believe in the Trinity in order to like, you know, because cause there's, nothing, there's nothing in the book that says anything about Trinity. And then you just have these different types of questions and just bantering back and forth. The pastor enjoyed it. At least that's what he conveyed. But you had this bantering back and forth between the next generation and an elder around questions and ideas. And that was a place that was affirming when I know the church is not affirming for a lot of people. That was my experience. And it was there alongside the corporate setting that I was thinking about, like, I might be called to ministry, but I had this quandary because I was thinking about doing an MBA. <laughs> so I sat down with my boss. He was a great mentor, but he was also a devoted Christian leader within his own church. You know, we'd be working late at night and he's working on something for church or whatever. It's like, man, like, what are you doing? You supposed to be preparing for this meeting. We got these banking presidents coming in. Oh, yeah, well, you're going to do that presentation. I, I, I'm just doing the analysis. Yeah, but that's the only way you're going to learn. You, you, you got to learn by doing. So you do this little short presentation, a little small piece, and then he will carry it forward. But that's how he was. But he said, come on in tomorrow. I want to tell you something. Did you know the so-and-so and so-and-so? But did you know this or that? And he started just quoting off these kind of Bible facts and that type of thing. And I sat down with him one evening as we were having one of these exchanges, and I say to him, man, I'm trying to contemplate, should I go do the MBA or should I go do an MDiv? He didn't steer me in one direction. He said, why don't you apply to both? Me at the time, I was like, well, I feel like I just need to apply to one or the other because it wouldn't be like faithful I apply to both because then it just be like, whatever you get in, that's what you were supposed to do. <laughs> so I sat with my pastor in, way led on to way, and I applied to the uh, MDiv and got accepted to Duke and went there and told the folks in the corporate setting. And surprisingly, they were very supportive. They were very supporting, loving. And so I had a person ask me that I was sharing a cubicle with. So they said, you go on the seminary, you're going to be a preacher. So what you going to do next? You're going to get you a church? You're going to do this and that? I said, well, I don't know. Instinctively, I feel like, I don't know, like I, I like to do like consulting with churches and denominations around like the next generation, like cultivating the next generation of leaders or helping them change their institutions, some of what I've learned here. I don't know if there's a job like that, but I love to do something like that. And then fast forwarding at the seminary, six years later, I wound up at FTE. Unbeknownst that there was anything like an FTE. Because FTE was defunct in the late 90s. It was just getting back on its feet. So I didn't know anything about an FTE, known as a fund for theological education, let alone that this is an organization that did this kind of work. Who would have known I'd be doing something like what I was at least trying to articulate six years prior? 
We're going to have to bridge that gap a little bit. And I'm going to tease out your former boss's way that he expressed it. You need to learn by doing. So in that six years, you're going through your MDiv, you get a job between this and FTE, you start doing some stuff. What are some of those things that you start doing to tease that out? One night I was over at my pastor's house. I think I had gone to drop off something for a recommendation or something to that nature, uh, to request for recommendations. So I was on my way home. I don't have music turned on anything. Just time to clear my head. I'm on these back streets and I hear this. Do you trust me? Now, I'm a natural skeptic. I'll be the first to tell you. I think I'm a healthy skeptic, but I am a skeptic in things. Do you trust me? I'm thinking to myself, I'm making this up. Well, do you trust me? I don't know. I don't know if I do. As far as I can explain it, Patrick, I'll say it this way. It sounds crazy. But the point is that if you trust me, let me steer the car. Let me drive. I'm not talking metaphorically. <laughs> um, and for a minute, I, I take my hands off the steering wheel. And, it, and in this moment, it's this whole idea about whether or not a skeptic can trust the eternal. I get home, I get out the car, and I'm dumbfounded. I never had that type of deeply spiritual, intuitive moment before. And, and one of the reasons being so is because I've written about this in another way. When I'm six or seven years old, my mother had postpartum depression, but she had some other things going on. You know, I prayed and prayed for her and nothing happened. How do you trust the eternal if you can't trust the eternal to take care of your primary caretaker? So there's been this thread of a skeptic learning how to trust and lean into its own source, the eternal that animates all life. When I get out of school, I have another one of these encounters. I was dating a young lady for two years and was going to get you know, engaged. And they go on a vacation and they die in a tragic accident. And I was dumbfounded. I was like, this is not supposed to happen to young people preparing for ministry. Like, this is crazy. And I didn't feel like I had anything within my educational background or upbringing that prepared me for this kind of horrendous experience. If you would rewind back to the things leading up to that summer, like there were things that had come up that summer that were signposts of what was to come. I'm doing an internship in this church this woman has a tragic experience. And I told her, I said, you know, it's okay for you to be angry with God. God's big enough to handle what you're going through. You don't need to clean it up for me or whatever. I'm mid-20s. And she was like, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. She just kept it real polished, kept it real positive, kept it real clean. And that was her fate. She could do that. And then fast forward two months, this thing happened to me. I was not as buttoned up as she was. I was mad as hell. I'm saying all this to say is that there's something that's beyond what we're studying. There's something beyond the curriculum. There's something beyond the syllabus. There's something beyond what we're doing on Sunday that has arrested me and continues to ask this question of, do you trust me? And I hear it and it's, strong, it's a strong urge, a strong sensing. So when I get out of school, I had to put my whole life back together again because I couldn't return back to where I was. I need a fresh start. I came to Atlanta, got married, I got a job working for Sprint of all places. It's like, I'm not, I'm not doing this. I'm going to get me a regular job and I'm going to fall back on my finance degree. And that's what I was doing. And then I met Alton Parler, who was the director of Black Church Studies at Emory, was at a little small church on the 
northwest side of Atlanta and said, hey, we need help. Would you consider coming over? And I came over there to visit and I decided, you know, that I would volunteer my time. And so I'm with him and I'm with another friend of mine. He says, you're on cruise control. You could be doing a whole lot more than what you're doing, but you're not. You have to find resolution within yourself to figure out how you make peace with your past, harm and injury, and find a way to move forward because you have a lot to give to our industry, to his work. I was like, man, I'm not trying to do that. He said, well, I want you to come to a class. I'm going to let you and a couple other folks TA with the class. And that's what I did. And, you know, it was an opportunity to try on. Maybe the academic kind of track was for me. I got accepted to Emory to do a THM or something like that. And I decided not to do that because I was thinking about just doing a PhD. And so that was one of the things I was contemplating after I finish. I did that and I decided that I'm a practitioner and I'm going to figure out like, how do I bring this work? I'm wrestling with these ideas and I got to find me a laboratory. So he said, once you, you know, take it to the church. And that's what I did. I went to this church, Trinity African Baptist Church. Portia Wills leave. United Methodist didn't get an appointment and she started a church. Entrepreneur gave me a chance with Alton Pollard and some wonderful people over there. And she allowed me to do things that very few people would get to do when they were young. She gave me a lot of latitude to be able to teach and experiment and, and do a, a number of different things. So I did a whole host of stuff, like asking people from the pulpit, are there things that you always wanted to ask, but you never felt like you could ask of the Bible because it was considered to be taboo? If, if you are one of those persons, in the back of your pew, there's these little index cards. You can write those questions down. What we got on those index cards, I was like, People are going through some real stuff and it's all massive. How you doing? I'm doing fine. How you doing? And we keep on moving. But man, the stuff that people are asking about their loved ones, questions that they have about whether or not their loved ones were going to be saved or questions that they had about their own faith and their own kind of inner turmoil. I said, but scrap, whatever we was doing in Bible study, like this should be the thing that we're doing for the next whatever period of time. And it's like, great, let's do it. Let me tell you, it was standing room only. Do you hear me? Standing room only. And what that taught me is that if you meet people where their needs are and building your stuff around those kinds of needs, what are like, man, I'm convinced that you can do just about anything within these institutions and people will love you. So that's what we did. It was one of the best laboratories for what a small church with limited resources can do. If I can do this in a small place with no resources, man, if I had some resources, you can't tell me nothing. And so I was doing that and 9-11 had come and Sprint basically said, hey, if you want your jobs in Kansas City, I said, I'm not traveling, I'm not moving. And I had another mentor say, hey, why don't you come over to ITC? There's a place called the Institute for Church Administration and Management. You'd be the training manager and help them work with clergy around conflict resolution, interpreting financial statements, taxes, all these types of business organizational type of stuff. So I was the person who's responsible kind of helping making those events happen. And FT called me up and they said, hey, we need somebody with your skill set. I said, what's that? Someone with business skills and a theological background. I went there and the rest is history. And the NTA has more resources and I'm able to like do some amazing things with some amazing people. But those early laboratories of places like Trinity, even in places like the Institute for Church Administration and Management, those early places, like those laboratories, it was like my imagination on steroids. 
as I think about the way you're piecing all this stuff together, one of the things both that I love about Another Way and your leadership is the things that you are making space for both in yourself is this deep sense of questions, the space for anger, to be angry with the divine because the world has moments of deep pain and trauma. The space you gave yourself and gave your congregation members for grief, both with what happened in your own family and your own relationships. But now you come into FT where you're doing the next generation, where you're piecing these things together. You got this great experience in the business world around what does leadership development look like. You've experimented some at this church where you're saying, hey, your whole self, bring your whole self, all your deepest questions to this moment to go all the way back to the beginning, you're an architect, you're an artist. So you're piecing all this stuff together. Tell me about those first years at FTE. How is all of this coming together in this call at FTE? I was doing FTE and I was still working at the church. Actually, this is the weirdest thing. April 27, 2003, I get ordained, which is also the anniversary date of FTE's birth. Shortly after that, me and several friends, we get together and we was like, we need something else. We, we need a different container that can hold the, the fullness of our questions and our wonderings and our imaginations. It's probably about five or six of us. We got together and we got this thing. It's the trust. It's the soul's trust. And it's really people who are, are on the margins of whatever centers that call them to assimilate. But that group came together as a way of demonstrating that we need a different container. And so one of the things I want to encourage for young people is that if you need a different container, create a different container. You don't have to continue with business as usual. You don't even have to adhere to business as usual if you don't want to do that. Folks always say, even FTE, it's like, you know, why are y'all encouraging young people to go to church and become leaders of churches or whatever? If churches are not this, they're sexist and they're heteronormative, male-centered and all these types of things. Like, why would you encourage that? And my whole thing is the church is not what it is. For those who want and feel called to it, they can help shape what the church can be and what the church will be. You've always had people who were resistant revolutionaries who helped shape and broaden push these institutions, these communities of people to where they are and what they could be. And I would say there's a lot of women that are at the forefront of that, that have helped and shaped, at least in the African-American church context, when they didn't get their just due, that has helped these entities become what they are, nowhere near where they need to be, but have gotten us further along in that sense. And I've tried to encourage that because of my own experience and saying that, hey, you can do this. You don't even need a bunch of money. You just need folks who want to come together and say, hey, let's do something different. It's that kind of inkling that I think about where working in the church and working at FTE kind of helped me see some of this. And then as my work has progressed at FTE, I started thinking about how do we help people lead change? Like, What's the alchemy of how change happens? That led it into a project where former colleague Matthew Williams and I went with two other partners to see one of our funders and said, hey, we're thinking about this idea. Let's make it happen. But the precursor to that was this thing that I brought to Matthew. It was something to the effect of CDPL. It was like the Center for Public Leadership. And I had a concept paper or a business plan of this is what I'm going to do. Like, I'm going to build this thing. I'm just passing through. I'm not here for FT long time, just passing through. I'm going to develop this thing. He and I shared an office at the time, and FT had this bright idea that we're going to put all these young professionals in the basement 
and just let them do their thing. And that's what we did. There was a lot of kind of ideating between our offices and other people, but CDPL was a muse that became Next Generation Resources, which was another kind of nonprofit idea concept, which then became Project Rising Sun, which is the thing that actually got funded. But those iterative ideas is what emerged to Project Rising Sun. I was taking all that energy for the church, came to this place where I'm now sharing this office with this brother. He had hopes and dreams. We started talking about what if we could fund folks to like do their creative ideas. This is 10 years ago, writing up on a whiteboard. Like, man, if we could like fund people, help them like develop their ideas. Now you fast forward to 2017 comes Do Good X. All these things are iterative ideas that emerge out of ideation. Hey, what's going on? It is Dr. Patrick Reyes here, and I have another resource for you, a new one by our president, Stephen Lewis, and FTE Senior Director of Communications, Kimberly Danielle. And together, they are the co-founders of Do Good X, FTE's social accelerator, and they've written a book together, A Way Out of No Way, An Approach to Christian Innovation. They outline six steps, but beyond the six-step approach to Christian innovation, it is grounded in the life and ministry of Jesus and African diasporic people's indigenous experiences, what the authors are calling a way out of no way. So check out this resource. It goes live in mid-March, but is open for pre-sale, a way out of no way. Order today. So tell me about Do Good X, because this really is about ideation and innovation. The organization had been exploring this idea around uh, innovation. We have a number of scholars and graduates who are coming out of school and recognizing that the job market is going to change and having to freelance or be more entrepreneurial and trying to piece their calling and vocation together. And those jobs and opportunities are not going to be there in the future like they were in the past. Part of what we began wrestling with is that a lot of young people are wanting to make a difference in the world as activists and nonprofit leaders and other kinds of social services kind of agencies, or they want to work on these more kind of structural things. And so part of the question I began asking is, what do we do post-activism? How does the kind of fervor and the values and the, the problem that you're working on get sustained after the activism, but also even beyond their lifetime? When we started thinking through all this, part of it was acknowledging that If we could build something that democratized access to business and organizational skill sets for leaders who feel called to build new kinds of institutions as their ministry and to build ministries that may be businesses that employ others and address real concerns within the world, that would be a gift. That is another form of discerning pathways into ministry. And so Duke at X was really born out of the confluences of these different realities. So what would it be for us to actually democratize access to knowledge around starting businesses for good, particularly those who are women and people of color? Do Good X is a discernment process to help people discern, are you cut out for this? Is this something that you could do? And if you are, there are others that will join you to help you carry your work to the next level and see how way leads on to what. So you have Do Good X and FTE. Tell me how all this kind of fits under that umbrella vocation, helping people find meaning and purpose. In many ways, 
what I was trying to bring to FTE was this idea that the next generation is not the church of the future. The next generation is right here, right now, on ground floor, giving shape to what will become. And this idea that I want young people, I want my daughters, I want your daughter and son and the next generation to be able to live and lead out of their own sense of meaning and purpose. We talk about vocation call, but it really is people's own sense of meaning and purpose. I haven't traveled across the country and beyond, met anyone who said, I don't want my life to matter. I haven't met anyone who said, I don't want my life to have meaning. I haven't met anyone yet who have said that to me. A lot of what FTE is doing, it really has been kind of extracting, what is this organization? Yeah, we give fellowships, but at the end of the day, what we're really into is the idea that we're helping people discover their own sense of meaning and purpose. And specifically, how they live that meaning and purpose out through Christian ministry and teaching as a way to make the world a better place or to make a difference in the world. And so that's a lot of what I've tried to cultivate in my work at FTE towards that end. People who hear this and knowing that you're a president will think, oh, wow, presidents just ideate. That's what they do. They come up with great ideas. They stick with them. They create programs and incentives to do this work to help a new generation of young adults find meaning and purpose. But we know the job is also much more than that, bringing all that business experience, but also the people who you bring along. So it's not just your idea, but you're teasing in all this great energy for a national organization from all parts and walks of life. Executive leaders, folks who have aspirations to be an executive leader, how do you go from these great ideas that iterate over years, but also refined by the people and the structures that you put in place? So one of the things I would say is that the ideation stuff, why it may seem all nice and beautiful, ideas don't mean jack. They're a dime a dozen. At the end of the day, is whether or not you can actually execute and make an idea happen, right? Not just any old idea, an idea that really has impact and that can actually make a difference in the lives of your constituents <laughs> and advances your own particular mission. The energy is not in the ideating. The energy is in the execution. And I want people to hear that, right? Because the work is in the details. I was working on the execution of this grant for Project Rising Sun. And so every morning I was facing the rising sun, putting in two, three hours before I even get to, you know, the day's work. That's what has to get done in order to see a thing through. So as an executive, what I would say is that all of what you are up to rests on the execution and you have to have a good team and you have to be able to bring that team along. You got some executives, that's all they do is ideate. You got some executives where their position is nothing but a position to build their own brand. That is not me. Whether you're at the top or the bottom, we all got to roll our sleeves up. So I know what it is making copies and doing all those types of things that you have to do in order to make the organization work. That's what it is being a journalist. That's what I learned at Bank of America. It's not about the top, it's about the people who are actually helping to carry the work forward. And so you got to bring people along and you got to work a lot on the interpersonal dynamics. Leadership for the vast majority is what takes place below the net. 
It's not about what you hear. It's not about what you think. It's the emotional waterline below the neck that really is the, the thing that you have to tend to. And so when people think about organizational change, when people think about organizational behavior, you're tending to the dynamics between people's response to change, people's excitement change, people's pushback against change, people who are comfortable in doing things like they've always done it. And so the kind of coordination and the communication and the training and the evaluating and the assessment and making sure you got benchmarks and how you coordinate all that together towards a particular vision, like it is not for the faint of heart. I was not interested in being the president of FT. Like I didn't go seeking that. I was a young person in the organization saying, you know what? I'm going to get to my work. Like, I want to get to the work that I'm supposed to be doing for my own vocational trajectory. I had a senior director of communication walk down to my office. She said, you're going to be the next president of of the organization. I'm thinking to myself, I'm not even going to be here. I'm working with an executive coach. I'm probably going to go do something else. She said, why? You're going to be the president. You get this type of community affirmation. And then you have detractors. People come to me and say, you know, it's not your time. I said, I didn't even say I was applying for a job. Again, it's this whole thing about trusting that way will lead on to way. And so why do I say that? If you're pursuing an executive role, I want you to know that while it may come with particular perks and that type of thing, realize that the job will be always bigger than you and it's not as glamorous as you think it is. It's like preparing for another profession that's different from the one in which you've been trained in. If you're not looking for it and you're open to it, similar things. You got to build your skill set and your capacity to do this work in a particular way that you may not have thought about or even considered. And so people who are interested in the call to executive leadership need to know the stuff of organizations from operational, programmatic. They need to think about how change gets done, who has agency and power and authority to affect change. They got to think about insurance, risk management. They got to think about all types of liabilities and that type of thing. They got to be able to distinguish themselves as the executive from their own personal opinions and ideas. They got to be able to self-differentiate. This is me talking versus this is the executive talking. And also understanding that when they're talking, they can never fully distinguish themselves from each other. So learning how to do that and to be masterful of that takes time. And so you can't just think because I was trained in this one thing that that naturally transfers over to being an executive. Our industry needs good leaders and our leaders need better education and their education from a PhD to a master's level degree in the humanities is insufficient to prepare them for all of the stuff that they will endure and encounter as an organizational executive. They need that stuff, but that stuff is such a small part of what they will be doing. You need someone who knows the stuff of organizations and particularly nonprofit leadership. Or we'll continue to possibly have what we've experienced and what other organizations experiences, which is you set people up in roles that doesn't allow them to be successful because these jobs are so big. But when it comes to running an organization, the executive office is not a pulpit. The executive office is not a classroom. It's not a library. And so if you're going to be a nonprofit leader, you need to know the stuff of nonprofit leadership. Take this to seminaries and that type of thing. What trained you to be a researcher 
It's not the same thing that you need to be an executive. And there's a mismatch in the education and the opportunity. And so if you don't have experience of learning this stuff on the job, then there's an educational gap for preparing people for executive leadership. I'm just fortunate because I've had a lot of experience outside of religious institutions with regards to executive and nonprofit leadership. You have to be a student of organization. If you're a student of organization, you got to be a student of people and their behaviors and the dynamics and the structures and the process and the policies and the governing bodies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those things are crucial. They're critical. So you can have an idea all you want to. But if you don't know how to navigate the mechanisms that help make that idea come to fruition, it will be off or not. What I want for those who are interested and those who are called is the industry to do a better job in their preparation for those entities. Because our institutions are going to need even more qualified leaders and their training is going to have to be better because these institutions are going to be even more strained they're going to have less resources to work with. That is me looking back over my life and saying, someone who was thinking about the next generation of leaders for Nations Bank did not wait till Nations Bank needed leaders to be thinking about developing leaders. And they didn't think about when they needed to be training them to then be training. And what I'm saying as an entity who's responsible for cultivating the next generation leadership and a voice of many within the industry that is cultivating leaders for its institutions, that we need to hear to that same type of advice and not wait till when leadership is needed and to get about the business of cultivating and addressing the educational gap so that institutions have a fighting chance. I still believe that the vast majority of our resources are tied up in institutions. We need folks who can be moral agents, have creative minds, but who are artistically competent executives to execute on the mission of their institutions and hopefully to contribute to a life of flourishing and healing for the constituents that they're working with. That leads me to this question of you were an artistic kid drawing things that you saw in the world. You had these experiences at the wheel of the car where you heard, do you trust me? And I know you have your own practice the divine, almost as a mystic. I am wondering how you marry these two things together. So you just gave me the kind of like organizational OD stuff, the organizational leadership stuff you need to have to be an executive. But the executive role isn't always forward thinking. It's not always generative. It's not always bells and whistles and dreaming up new plans and then putting the right people. It's also can be a lot of time alone in discernment, thinking about the decisions you have to make, the people that you're responsible for, and your own sort of inner voice, what's happening in your body. You said most leadership's from you know the neck down and what you feel in your body. Tell us a little bit about your practice as an executive leader in that. How do you manage that? It's difficult because like everybody else, you pull in so many different areas and sometimes you're trying to put out fires. And so, you know, really trying to find space to cultivate and to reflect on the work is you got to steal away that time to do that. I have inbreakings of just in a church kind of way we would talk about, you know, it's spirit that has this unction that is calling you. It's like these deeper intuitive sensibilities that call out to me. So sometimes I have dreams about stuff that's going on and then something I need to attend to and it's something I need to attend to. 
or it's reflecting and trying to get up underneath the symptoms, what I see and what I hear and what I think, but really get into the structure. Like, why do we keep seeing these same things over again? I'll intuit something. I get an impression. You need to go look or you need to search X, Y, Z. It's not me. And I do that. And it'll be, you know, an answer or some insight that leads to something that we're working on. I think part of what my gift is, is a synthesizer, trying to bring different ideas together and trying to pull them together. And to me, it's like an artist who's trying to draw something or paint something on a canvas and it's pulling in these multiple kind of ideas, but it's, will I be, will, will I be sufficient enough to, to pull this thing together the way that it's coming or it's communicating to me? And that's always the burden of this, but those kinds of practices require you to get off the grid. I get off the grid weekly, or it's being in nature, it's riding bikes, or it's walking trails or something, but it's, it's getting out of the, the routine and not like vacation. Like we need this more regularly. So weekly, I'm spending time giving attention to my intentions and giving attention to what is reciprocated as a result of that. We need many Sabbaths and sabbaticals on a weekly, daily basis so that we can come back to the work refreshed and renewed. Because this is below the net kind of work, you got to be able to guard your person or your field because you can become a magnet for a lot of people's kind of emotional turbulence. And some people haven't learned how to shield that. They exhaust it. People who haven't learned how to do that, they track the energy of other folks or whether they feel empathically what other people do. And so you got to figure out how do you gauge that and monitor that in a very balanced or a harmonious kind of way. Because if you don't, you'll be too open and you'll feel and intuit what other people are like sensing and you just can't work that way. So let me give you an example of that. A couple of years ago, you and I was doing something together, and it was one of these emotional, hard days for a number of different reasons. Our colleague was leaving to go on the next adventure of his vocational journey. You know, I had some stuff going on personally, et cetera, et cetera. And so you and I are doing this thing for a group, and a person asked me a question, and it just opened me up in terms of this level of vulnerability. So they asked me, so is the work hard? Do you ever get discouraged by the work? And I said, man, let me tell you something the stuff that we all have going on in our life. When I think about work, this is nothing compared to life. Like, I can do work. It is the beauty and the volatility of life, sometimes violently, that'll wash us under if we don't figure out how to build whatever boats that helps us navigate the kind of eddies that we um, will encounter, the currents. I had this moment where, you know, I was just in tears. It was one of those kind of inbreakings where, you know, you try to keep it all together as a professional and executive or whatever, but we're also very human. I feel bad. I was like, oh my God, I'm showing all these emotions. Like, I'm a laid back brother. I try to keep it intact. As a professional, you can't wear your heart on your sleeve. You may think you can, but you can't. But you can't be cold and robotic either. So, as a leader, you got to find the right balance that allows you to be fully human. And it's also fully professional. And there are times where we need to be vulnerable so that people know that we care about the work and that we care about them. You will be tutored 
and learn how to manage your emotions. I think that's for you know all people of color, but I'm just talking from my particular vantage point. So I say all that to say is that you find you a discipline that allows you to access and to process your emotions, but also what you're processing in terms of another dimension. Because I just believe, no, I know that what I'm able to do and what I'm able to accomplish is not just on my own ability. I know that I'm guided. I know that this team is guided. And I know that what we're up to is beyond what I can just see in terms of flesh and blood. And so that requires me as a leader to be an integrationist, to know the technical stuff of business and organizations and also be able to rely on a deep will, resources that we all have access to within ourselves, between us and beyond us. That's not liturgy. That's not preaching. That's not worship. That's what all those things point to. And so I'm trying to develop habits and practices that allow me to access that even more. Because from where I sit, that's ancestral. And if people want to know what we're practicing, and Christianity in particular, is an ancestral religion. There's a reason why they're talking about the God of Jacob, Isaac, and so on. There's a reason why you have those genealogies. And so we have this great reservoir of ancestral wisdom that is available to us. The way I talk about it, Patrick, when I think about a practice is that there's a morphogenetic field, which is to say there's a field of knowing that we didn't know that we have access to and that each of us are a library to be mined. Because within us are worlds of spirit, of the sound of the genuine, of hopes and dreams, our answered prayers, in the seas of a better world. And so part of it is like, how do we access our own libraries? How do we read ourselves and access the voluminous volume of a spirit that is waiting to conspire with us? And so that's what those practices help me to do and integrate with the type of technical or the technique of organizations to be hopefully, a, you know, fully human and hopefully create an organization that allows others to do that while at the same time realizing that it is work. The way that you've talked about your call journey going all the way back from Alabama, Boston, Roxbury connection, Mm -hmm. being an artist, an architect. I mean, you are a brilliant architect of people, of spaces, going through all this OD work. But you also have folks like Matthew, who you've journeyed with, this soul's trust, this deep sense of family. How much of your sense of call, less of the how, but your why, the meaning and purpose of your life comes from the broader sense, the connection to ancestors, your community, your people, and how much comes from these conversations where you're at the wheel and you hear the, do you trust me? It's not an either or, it's both and. It is the same. The eternal is within us. It's the you of you. And it is the you of you collectively in terms of Ubuntu. I am because we are, but there is something that that animates all of us. And we all are playing a role in a larger vocation on behalf of what God is up to in the world for the sake of the least among us. And so when it's, that several years ago of the do you trust me to what takes place when I'm in my own time down in the woods or what's taking place in preparing a board meeting and 
I'm having a perfunctory conversation over Slack and I get arrested by something. Like all that is spirit. And I don't want to make the kind of false dichotomy to say that it's one or the other. Spirit in the end is communal. Let us make humanity in our image. Now let me. So whatever that communal entity, whatever that communal, familial, or ancestral entity is, we are an extension of that. For that, I'm grateful. Because without that, I may not have my own sense of North Star that guides me, but also calls me into that ancestral river for those who come before me and those who come along after me. That each of us stand in a long lineage of spirit working in us individually and working through us collectively and beyond us to get something done on behalf of humanity. I hope that our listening audience gets the gift that is to work for you and with you at FTE because the the pieces you're talking about, the having a longer family, being human together, navigating work and life and spirit as it is all one, you model that better than anyone else in the industry and the facilitating of spirit. I think the way you do that both in FTE and I would say in the broader theological education, church, academy, social entrepreneurship space, it is rare because the way that we've been trained up, as you've so eloquently said, has not been this. It's been orthodoxy. It's been top-down leadership. It's been about creating solutions for everyone else to follow. And it really is a privilege to work at FT and see the way that you've been leading this organization and to be a small part of it. So thank you. I consider it a great privilege to work with you and others who keep me on my toes. And we keep each other on our toes and hopefully build towards something that is meaningful and is life-giving and that will stand the test of time. So I'm grateful to all our good colleagues who make the dream what it is. And where we going? Tell them, Patrick, they better buckle up. You ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) I was going to say, to use your own words here, that you have gathered like the super crew of folks who can give attention to the right intentions and uh, for that i'm grateful so thank you Stephen. thanks again for listening to president Stephen lewis's story and as a reminder go out there and get a way out of no way and approach to christian innovation you can find it anywhere that books are being sold i want to thank all of our colleagues at fte for making this work possible and a special shout out to Elsie Barnhart and Heather Wallace who set up all of this podcast and Sir Yali Beats for his music and Diva Morgan Hicks for getting this story out into the world. You can find this podcast and all of our resources at ftleaders.org and we hope to see you next time on The Sound of the Genuine.